0: I'm Dr. Scott Masson with uh, my colleague, Dr. Bill Friesen for Paideia today, and we are going to indulge ourselves a little bit by spending a second episode on Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Uh, Last time we just set the stage really for our portrait because of the various themes that were involved in it. But today we're going to go through the text in uh, some detail at any rate, uh, and I'm going to pass it over at this point to my colleague, Bill. Go ahead. Thank you, Scott. Um, I'm
1: reading the little bit that starts at uh, line 130 here in the first fit where uh, we see the entry, uh, the rather spectacular entry of the Green Knight into Uh Feasting Hall of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. Uh, And I'll see how well I can do this here with my old eyes. Now I will say nothing more about how they were served, for everyone can guess that no shortage was there. Another noise! quite different, quickly drew near, so that the king might have leave to swallow some food, for hardly had the music stopped for a moment, and the first course been properly served to the court, when there burst in at the hall door a terrible figure, in his stature the very tallest on earth, from the waist to the neck so uh, thick-set and square, and his loins and his limbs so massive and long, in truth half a giant, I believe he was. But anyway, of all men, I judge him the largest, and the most attractive of his size, who could sit on a horse. For while in back and chest his body was forbidding, both his belly and his waist were becomingly trim, and every part of his body equally elegant in shape. His hue astounded them, set in his looks so keen, for boldly he rode in. And overall, so I'm going into Middle English, completely emerald green. So this is the spectacular entry of the fabulous, I should say rather marvelous Green Knight because uh, the concept of the marvel is absolutely central to the uh, to the operations of medieval romance and he is indeed a marvelous figure who will uh, um, uh, set in motion some marvelous deeds to come. Um, and of course, this is at, uh, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, this uh, incident is coming at an interesting time of year. This is Christmas and moving into the new year. Um, and uh, so it's a very significant time on the liturgical cha- calendar of, uh, of the medieval uh, imagination. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the time of new life, of rebirth, um, uh, an engendering of hope in the celebrations um, that are everywhere. Um, and the, the figure of the green Knight, of course, uh, factors into all of this uh, very centrally. Um,
0: Why is he in green? Why is he so large? Why is he so good looking?:
1: <laughs> There's a lot of- that, it's
0: a, that's an incongruous combination. The green and the large uh, have monstrosity about it the The small waist and the sort of Superman torso seems like it doesn't quite fit. What do you make of this here?
1: There's a number of things. I mean, a lot of scholars have said a lot of things very confidently about what things connote in this story and what things symbolize in this story. Um, And uh, I'm going to adopt a rather medieval position on this um, and to say um, all we have are our best guesses. So that's what I'm giving you here. There are some highly suggestive guesses we can make uh, about the color green, about his stature, to mention that he's a gigantic man, uh, one of the most gigantic men who could be carried on horse. Uh, we've got the time of the year, all these sorts of things. So I'm just going to put these out as suggestions. Let's start with the gigantic man on horse motif. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually a motif that goes way back into, uh, in this case, not Celtic lore, but Germanic lore. Uh, it says at a certain point in uh, Beowulf that Huyallac was so huge. Um, that his feet dragged on the ground. And this is a motif you hear mentioned around several legendary Germanic uh, figures out of uh, Germanic, uh, ancient Germanic myth, that they were men who were either so big um, that horses could barely bear them or that their feet dragged on the ground or that horses uh, couldn't carry them at all. Um, But they're huge, gigantic men. That's how big they were. And this is a standard way um, of describing uh, the sheer size of the individual. So it's very interesting that it crops up here. Can we draw any direct lines between those legends and what we're encountering in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? No, we can't. All we can say is that it's highly suggestive. Mm -hmm. So there's that. The color green is overwhelmingly important in this tale, perhaps obviously Sir Gawain and the Green Knight title. Um, And green is going to come back and haunt us in scene after scene with, Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, individuals and symbolic uh, um, items and things of that nature. So, Again, let's begin by scratching our heads and thinking a little bit uh, about what green traditionally has symbolized in the Western imagination. And obviously, one of the things um, uh, that I've already mentioned here is um, fertility, hope, and new life. Uh, in particular, we see. Um, Decorations of holly bobs and things like this around which are traditional sort of decorations for uh, Christmas and New Year's and what have you, you'd find them all over the place in medieval villages and castles and keeps at this time of the year. And the holly, of course, is significant because it uh, um, uh, The holly bush is significant because it keeps its green leaves, even in the dead of winter. It remains green when everything else is bare and brown and gray and, and, and looks dead. So it is often seen as a sign that new life will return again. There's a, there's a notion that the nature is not done with us. The season of death, in, which of course is winter, uh, will not persist forever. And spring shall come again. New hope shall come again. Fertility shall come again. New things shall come again in the springtime. Um, and it has been mentioned that um, the holly berries, the red berries, um, contrast strikingly with those green leaves of the holly tree. And that perhaps this, in some primitive sense, represents the blood of sacrifice, which is required to return to that realm of new life and hope uh, and these sorts of things. This can place very suggestively and very richly with um, uh, medieval notions of Christmas and perhaps modern notions of Christmas as well, wherein we celebrate um, the birth of Christ at this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, how Christ himself for all mankind brings the hope of new life uh, here in the midst of the season of death. Uh, And that association is made quite explicit by St. Augustine of Canterbury, not to be confused with St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, who came in 597 to, uh, at the behest of Gregory the Great, uh, to the coasts of England to begin the conversion process of the pagan Anglo-Saxon barbarians, and he landed in, I think it was Kent, and uh, things took off from there, but, um, and I might have mentioned this previously around Beowulf or somebody like this, but but I'll mention it very quickly here, Mm -hmm. um, which is that he asked, he sent a letter back, which we still have, um, to Pope Gregory asking what he was to do with the pagan um, um, sanctuaries, the pagan temples. Yes,
0: yeah, you mentioned this, but go on.
1: And uh, also, what what does he to do with the pagan uh, religious holidays? Right. Gregory told him convert it. Um, so the notion here is that it's likely that the holly, uh, holly, bobs, holly wreaths, stuff like this, um, are pre-Christian symbols which nevertheless uh, speak to this hope for new life and the sacrifice that needs to go into the new life and the red and the green and all, all that rich interplay. So that gets converted to Christian a Christian imagination, Christian purposes. Yeah. You you've got, have a very striking um, painting that you put up here, Scott. Tell yeah, it looks, it
0: looks like it's medieval. I don't, I'm not sure the exact uh, origin of this, but it's got the sort of uh, the telltale Victorian signs about it sorry i said medieval i meant victorian it's just the image of the figure and the uh ladies looking up and so it looks like that late uh 19th century period um with the man um not looking particularly gigantic actually um but aside from that obviously the green knight uh and um something romantic about it as well here, and not quite so monstrous or terrifying, I think. Um, but that, at least this is not what I would see in my mind's eye. He does not look infinitely larger than the other ones. No. Um, so We
1: have to remember that our understanding of, of the, the Middle Ages, and particularly the High Middle Ages, um, runs through a great series of filters and lenses historically. Um, each era remakes the, the Middle Ages. Uh, to some extent in its own image, and I think that painting that you showed there really kind of uh, uh, highlights that that mm. tendency. Mm. Um, and if we're not careful, I think oftentimes we can come to medieval literature uh, and the Middle Ages, more generally speaking, um, without explicitly registering in our own minds that uh, we're actually getting multiple interpretations, interpretations of an interpretation of an interpretation of the Middle Ages, or Sir Gowan and the Green Knight specifically. Um, we have to be careful about that, I think. This is one of the reasons I insist on, uh, when I'm reading medieval literature, uh, defamiliarizing myself as much as possible to see the wonderful strangeness of these uh, these tales and uh, this worldview.
0: So, I mean, I say more or less what you've said there. I mean, it seems obvious that uh, the symbolism of the holly is a symbol of an evergreen symbol of life, so forth, uh, to this day. Those symbols are used, uh, the colors red and green are used uh, as traditional Christmas colors. Uh, Martin Luther made it famous in the uh, uh, Otannenbaum, the Christmas tree, as it's translated into English. Uh, So something of the ancient Yule Tide festivals, uh, phrase is still used in English, although people don't know what it means, seems rather antiquated. One final thing—it's—it's it's remote from the text here, really, but it is a contemporary gloss on these sorts of things, which is ties in with what you said about the fact that um, these texts would have, uh, or the idea of a Yule festival, would have predated the Christians that came here, and so some have said that the Christmas festival has is has been put into this date for, you know, there was no. December 25th is arbitrary and that it was connected to this for apologetic reasons and all this sort of thing. I think there are texts that demonstrate that December 25th was pretty early on established long before the encounter with the uh, Britons and uh, their Yule Tide uh, festival, but nonetheless there are obvious overlaps there. But one of the things that people want to do is they see Christianity as an imposition on another culture and it's a sort of a cultural appropriation oh, yeah. and they want to restore the primacy of the original images and so forth so you get this this new paganism um and and this might be the response to everything that you've said at this point how do you respond to that because oh. it's certainly a resurgence of paganism and and even even full-blooded paganism which includes sacrifices then as well
1: yeah, there's. It, I oftentimes hear people mention how uh, what is celebrated as Christmas nowadays is, quote unquote, inauthentic. Um, right. the, the phrase you use there, um, of course, is a loaded one used oftentimes in cancel culture, that it's uh, cultural appropriation or something right. like that. Um, and I think yeah, especially the initial uh, missionaries like Augustine and what have you, who are dealing this, with this sort of situation, would have been rather per- perplexed by those um, protests. Um, and they would have simply said, "Look, we encountered something that was important to a fallen people, and as they were converted to Christianity, so many of their so also many of their important sort of cultural icons could be converted as well to good effect uh, That is exactly what we encounter in that letter
0: no, so rather rather than cancelling their culture we 're appropriating it and giving a, a nod of legitimacy to it while the full meaning of this has been hidden to the pagans, and we are revealing the full significance of it." Correct.
1: Yeah. Remember the December 25th date, that put me in mind here that uh, until we encountered, and again, I think I might have mentioned this glancingly at, at a certain point earlier on, until we get to the history of the English church and people by that famous historian, the Venerable Bede, uh, we had been dating history in a great series of very confusing layers Um, We have regnal dating on the one hand. We have this other thing known as uh, indictions, uh, whereby you would reckon in 15-year cycles, and then you would repeat it, and then you would repeat it. And we have three different kinds of breakdowns when it comes to indictions. Uh, uh, One, which is known as the Greek indiction. Um, By the way, this starts in 312. They start doing this. Uh, Mm -hmm. This starts on September 1st. Uh, Then you have the imperial indiction, which starts on September 24th. And then finally you have the pontifical indiction which starts on December 25th and so you would begin the new 15-year cycle. Um, and then of course along comes Bede and Bede uh, has read this obscure historian Dionysus Exiguus. Um, and uh, Dionysus said, you know, this is all very confusing. Why don't we just date history from uh, the birth of Christ onwards and then everything before that is, uh, is prior to that and we'll date backwards and, you know, it's, it's just a lot cleaner. Uh, he was, uh, exiguous means small or insignificant or humble or something like this and predictably he was ignored. Um, and along comes uh, the venerable deed in the dark fastness of Northern England And Bede says, actually, this guy had a great idea. Um, That's how I'm going to date everything in my uh, history of the English church and people. And because that text spread so widely um, as essentially the primary history text of the early Middle Ages, um, however Bede did historiographical business became the standard respected way of doing business. And so that's why we date things as we date.
0: I just find I find this endlessly fascinating. It does give rise to the question, if, if not this then what? I mean, if it's not going to be this, even if you want to do what modern historiographers do or secular scholars do, and rather than using B.C. and A.D., uh, the Anno Domini, and they use B.C.E., um, the, before the Common Era, my question always is, well, what's common about the Common Era, per se? And and really, it they they lack the knowledge of what you've just said about the fact that time around this period is dated from the time of Christ, and it's established. And, and if we don't look at it that way, then what do we do and what would replace that chronology? And it, it's unclear, and anybody's ever coming up come up with an alternative to it
1: No. And I think in addition to that, we have to remember that the people who are trying to shift things around nowadays are doing so for uh, largely political reasons.
0: Yeahs pol- yeah,
1: as far as to say fashionable political reasons. And uh, whereas Bede was deciding to date as he dated things, uh, for hard, professional, efficient, pragmatic reasons, on the other hand, which seems to me a stronger set of criteria, but what do I know? I'm just a medievalist.
0: But I mean, almost almost scientific then, you would say, like it's a way of fashioning and understanding time and the ages and how, yes, that's right.
1: Efficiency is is essential to this. And uh, obviously, uh, the Venerable Bede was a deeply pious individual. And to then um, set that start point as the historical axis around which history, uh, the birth of Christ as, as the axis around which the uh, which history orbits uh, seems elegant. If i you know,
0: it's not just elegant. Again, it's, it's something that seems not to be eradicated. And for Christians, once again, time as a beginning and an end, um, and it's centered around the, the coming of Christ and then be a second coming. So that. All of these things give it a trajectory, and when one speaks of progress, which one does these days, if one dispenses with the idea of the second coming, what is one progressing towards? All of these things, these questions are begged, and there's nothing. There's nothing that fills it actually per se. Anyway, I we get to, I talk about this all day because I really find it interesting, and probably our listeners do as well because they haven't heard what you just said there either. So I think that w- there will be some interest, but we better move on with the text here uh, because we will end up geeking out and talking at, at uh, great length about this. And we haven't even described him in any specific detail aside from his stature. Uh, what about his uh, armament? We, we haven't said anything about what he is holding there. The ax and, and the shield and uh, the holly. Do you have any pictures there of any sort? I don't know if you do. And if not, just describe them for us. Um, I, I have no pictures of that. I do have a later
1: um, uh, later on in our discussion today. I've got okay. by Albert Durer, uh, Death Knight and the Devil. And there's yep. a couple of sort of iconographic details of that uh, that connect to our, our tale today, Sir Gavin and the Green. Okay,
0: but so let, let me say that he, he has a battle axe. And it's very described as a, this is not just any old axe. This is a very large uh, type of, is it a Norse axe even?
1: It seems to be. And this, uh, I mentioned this last time. There are a large, a, a strangely anomalously large number of Scandinavian, that is to say Viking loanwords in this story. And as I said last on the last uh, podcast, uh, they show up in very strategic points and then they vanish again, as do the French words. Yeah. So there seems to be a a steady, quiet undercurrent of certain Scandinavian sensibilities. And one of the great icons, of course, of Viking culture is the great axe. I've got one hanging up over there, over my uh, right shoulder. In point of course you that. do. Of course I do.
0: What else would you have hanging over your right shoulder, yeah. besides the skull on the shelf? But never mind that. Yes. <laughs> Um,
1: yeah, no, I'm surrounded by the morbid him, so Indeed. <laughs> Memento Mori. Anyway, yes. Um, yes, he strikes a, a very impressive figure. He's gigantic, of course, uh, almost supernaturally gigantic, of course, in addition to the great axe, um, giants. Uh, so the
0: axe, the shield, and the, hol- no, he doesn't have a shield here, actually. He's got the axe and the holly bob. Why those two things? So that, so one is obviously a threatening sign. Mm-hmm. The other, but, he, but he has no armament either. He has no hauberk. He has no uh, armor. in no. uh, One and the, and the other. And the, okay, so the, 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 what's so the, with that? So the
1: weapons, uh, uh,
0: people talk a lot
1: about um, the sort of um, ceremonial, ritualistic uh, nature of certain weapons in the Middle Ages. And it's, it's true that we have some extraordinary uh, extraordinary um beautiful richly made weapons uh from the middle ages as we do from other ages which do not seem to have been intended for actual battle um they're simply too fine um oftentimes uh, the metals used in them are selected for uh Beauty. prince uh, rather than uh, actual fighting um and Here we seem to have a somewhat, again, with all things symbolic in this story, I always want to say this is, I'm following the spirit of Occam here. Um, We have only our best guesses, and that's all these are, but we need to guess anyway, what these things symbolize. Uh, The axe is, amongst other things, not just associated with Scandinavian culture and battle and berserkers and all that kind of stuff. And the berserker figure, by the way, kind of threatens a little bit in the background here as well, but not quite. Uh, but also, it's a oftentimes used as a sacrificial weapon, that is to say, it's the weapon that's used to sacrifice. And there does seem something deeply ritualistic about the beheading game, which is about to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and scholars have spilled a lot of ink on this front. Um, it's not my central concern, but I, I do note it uh, when I teach this uh, this text to my students.
0: So the axe is for sacrificial purposes. The holly bob, then, as I've called it, I I I have often presented, and we just talked about this a little bit, that it may not. I mean, when you think of holly, and you have any contemporary associations, it's something that you hang um and like the mistletoe perhaps or something that adorns the trip, but and so is he going to go kiss him here i don't think so there's no there's none of that here but nonetheless he has it in one hand it's most ex- our attention is drawn to it what is the connotation i wondered whether it was a reference to Loki, this this norse god that threw a holly bob and slew the king's son with it in light of the fact that he has this norse axe but i'm I'm totally speculating and I I don't know
1: but but it's again it's rich and uh, potentially very productive speculation because if, if you don't know the, the the myth um there is a myth that's, it may be a, a relatively late myth uh one of the Norse gods uh who doesn't get a lot of airtime in a lot of the other myths is baldur um the beloved god um and uh, he is invulnerable to all and every weapon every malaise he, he's he, he's uh, you know effectively, he's bulletproof. Uh, Which, of course, you know, after we had discussed the gods around uh, the Iliad and uh, the Aeneid, of course, uh, we would expect many modern readers to shrug and say, of course, he's a god. uh, So, of course, he's immortal and invulnerable. Uh, But no, uh, Norse gods are mortal. Uh, The things that makes them so fascinating, they can be harmed, they can be killed. Um, It's just extraordinarily difficult to do so. But Balder can only be killed by the one thing you just mentioned, holly, or rather the holly bob. Uh, and Loki, being Loki, um, well, there's a game going on in the great uh, hall, and they're throwing various things and attacking Balder with various uh, things, and it's all very funny and what have you. Um, this is the Norse gods being uh, funny and having fun, trying to kill someone. Um, and along comes Loki, who knows very well that the holly will kill Balder, and he throws the, uh, the the shaft, and it kills Balder. Uh, and then there's a. There's a lot that comes out of that. But Baldur is, interestingly, Baldur is said to be resurrected afterwards. Right. He is the one God who is resurrected afterwards right. during the new age, um, a very strange age. Uh, but in any event, um, yeah. But
0: sort of a Christ figure then of, in, in Norse literature, right?
1: Missionaries uh, definitely connected Baldur with the figure of Christ. Um, So there's there's a rich network of associations there. Uh, Again, we have to stop short of asserting things with absolute certainty because we just can't draw those lines professionally. Uh, But there is a lot clearly going on here. And maybe the original author simply meant these these connections, uh, the various symbolic registers of all these things and the way that they weave together to be elusive and suggestive rather than strict and canonical and clear. Um,
0: That seems to me... The best interpretation.
1: Yeah. So we get into this game. Let's talk a little bit about the beheading game. Um, the beheading game is, it's a motif that goes back again, both in Germanic and Celtic um, myth and legend and literature. Um, oftentimes in Germanic strains, it is associated with r- r- riddling and the riddling game that comes along with it. Um, and like, so,
0: like Gollum and the Lord of the Rings, that sort of, yeah. yeah. Totally
1: definitely pointing towards this rich uh, line of narrative. We also know that the ancient Celts, the ancient pre-Christian Celts, were strangely obsessed with severed heads. Um, I know, it's the kind of thing you can't make up. Um, and in with the uh, ancient Celtic, uh, we can call them palaces, though that word is enormously anachronistic. The royal houses of various Celtic war leaders, oftentimes, uh, had a stone uh, door frame, a stone lintel over the top. Mm-hmm. These were these were massive constructions. Some people have tried to associate them, I think, very dubiously with uh, structures such as Stonehenge and what have you. Though they're nowhere near as large. Uh, but the interesting here is that um, they would actually carve large niches into these stone door frames and into these would go the skulls of uh, individuals. We don't know for sure if they were their enemies or their ancestors or who these individuals were but the head went in there. Uh, And so the the ancient Celts mention severed heads on many different occasions and clearly had it in their iconography and in their imagination. Here we have another head being severed, of course because that is exactly what the Green Knight suggests as the game. He comes riding into the hall, a bit of a no-no that, um, so makes a spectacular entrance, um, and suggests that they have a little bit of fun. Um,
0: one, one, one other thing he does before he suggests that is he asks who is in charge. Because <laughs> he can't tell. Even though King Arthur sat in the middle on the, ta- the centerpiece of the table, he suggests that he doesn't know who is the Lord there. So there's a, there is more than a little bit of um, not only uh, alarm, but uh, obvious insult.
1: Yeah, there, he's right at the get-go. He's suggesting that either Arthur isn't recognizable, isn't behaving in a recognizable leadership fashion, um, or, or some such. Uh, And indeed, very quickly, we see Arthur show a lack of leadership skills right at the front end. You'll recall we were discussing last podcast how in the middle and later part of the Arthurian tradition in the Middle Ages, Arthur is quite consistently, not absolutely consistently, but quite consistently shown as a bad king. Um, Mallory in the Morta Arthur uh, makes great hay with this. Um, and here again, we have again the this author here also is following that tradition. Arthur comes off looking rather badly, um, hmm. and it 's Gowan who swoops in to save the day
0: and just pri and just prior to that, without we need to move on, but just prior to that, the reason that they are delaying at this Christmas tide uh, is because Arthur demanded a miracle before he would eat. he refused to eat until such time as a miracle had taken place, or some sort of fell deed had been performed right is that not something
1: he's after some form of marvel and the mar- yes um, and the marvel uh, to uh, put it in more french terms here um, is a kind of fantastic intrusion sometimes a sustained fantastic intrusion into the narrative that we encounter in medieval romance here of course in this case here it takes the form of the green knight as the figure of the green knight and then the things that the Green Knight uh, brings to pass in various, uh, at various removes. So this is all very marvelous stuff. Um, Arthur may also be waiting for that in story form uh, at the front end. But in turn, it turns out uh, he gets the, the real live form, which in turn becomes a story which, in which he doesn't actually figure very... Um,
0: prominently at all.
1: Yeah, right. doesn't prominently or, or well. So
0: Okay, so then the beheading game ensues. And uh, how much do we want to say about this other than that?
1: A little bit about this at the front. Well, first of all, let me signal one little sort of thematic thing at the beginning here. We've, we have the iconography of, of the holly uh, and the little red berries on the, the background of the green holly leaves. Um, and we talked about how the, the green represents things traditionally like new life, new hope, fertility, all that kind of stuff and the red berries represent blood because blood needs to be spilled in the traditional celebrations especially with pagan yule we think uh in order to bring about the new life uh that that comes out of here um and so i think in the iconography of the holly we also see a thematic sort of nod here the uh, the green knight is going to bring a process uh, to the Knights of the Round Table and to Gowan in particular, whereby sacrifice and new life are notions which are interplaying interestingly throughout the entire text here. So we need to keep that kind of at the forefront of our, our minds as we read closely
0: uh, the text. Um, that's, what, that's why I think the reference to Balder and his death and rebirth, as it were, are at least alluded to in the back of the reader's mind. but.
1: So they have that kind of pushing to the forefront here. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the psychology or the psychological landscape as the green knight throws out his, uh, it's not really a challenge, but it is a challenge. Um, A lot of my students express shock and dismay that somebody would suggest such a bizarre game. (laughs) And they, they write it off as saying, well, you know, the medieval mind was more suspicious, superstitious and, uh wasn't as critical or all sorts of dismissive things uh and i tell my students pay close attention here the the court of king arthur goes deadly quiet Hmm. uh green knight throws this challenge out why because they're shocked they're stunned they're appalled what a weird suggestion uh striking each other's heads off um and it just gets more and more awkward um you can imagine if you yourself were sitting there and, and the green knight rode in and said what he said and did what he did uh, you'd be thinking to yourself, what is the catch? Are you insane? Okay, you don't seem to be insane. So, okay, so what's the catch? What's going on here?
0: The insanity is that he offers to take the first hit. That's the insanity. It's not that he wants a fight with, a, with, with an axe. It's that he offers to take the first blow and then to return it in a day. And, and the terms of the pact are quite explicit and clear and binding, and those are important as well. Uh, as strange as they are, it's a year and a day from then. Correct.
1: Yes, and it lines up in some striking ways. I don't really have a uh, 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 time to get into it here today, but it it lines up very interestingly with the number of stanzas that we encounter—not a hundred, but a hundred and one. Hmm. Um, and we saw similar sorts of dynamics being played with in previous texts that we've looked at here. But uh, hmm. yeah, um,
0: such as Dante, yes. Commedia, right? Yep.
1: Correct. Um, and uh, we see the same sort of structure here. Um, and yes, um, the terms of the game are extremely clearly laid out. Um, and so watch for those carefully when we get to the far end of the text where we see the second beheading scene, um, because it is meant uh, as a contrasting scene and contrasting in a, a, a myriad of fascinating ways. So, yeah. Um, okay,
0: shall we progress over that? So he to, to put it briefly, uh, the Green Knight loses his head, picks up his head, and then the speaking head in his hand speaks to Gawain, saying, I'll see you in a year and a day, and rides out of the court.
1: Yes, and notice also that Gawain stepped in again because he's uh, the arch diplomat. He saves the honor of King Arthur specifically and the, uh, and the Knights of the Round Table in general because nobody volunteers to play the game and it gets more and more awkward, and eventually, in frustration, the the emotional and psychological play in this scene is is really quite fascinating. Um, Arthur, in frustration, jumps up and says, fine, I'll do it. That is a big no-no.
0: Right, he's not doing it out of honor or valor, he's doing it out of the opposite, some sort of.
1: So when Gowan says, no, no, don't worry, uh, I'm your nephew. I'll, I'll sort it out. I'll, I'll, I'll play the game. Uh, you shouldn't ha- you're you the king. You shouldn't have to play the game. You send people to do stuff. But notice that's also set up a very interesting dynamic. Now, Gawain does what he does, not to attain honor, but to hold back humiliation. Mm. So there's a negative impulse driving this quest right at the, uh, at the front end. There's something poisonous in the seed of this quest. Uh, and this is part of it. So as you say, then the, the, the Green Knight uh, does the unthinkable, um, grabs his head, off he goes, sees, says, see you in a bit. And you can imagine everyone in uh, the feasting hall is thinking, and I think I'm quoting here, oh, crap, oh, crap.
0: <laughs> That's almost a direct quote.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so there's that. Um, okay.
0: And then they carry on the feasting and uh, gowing tarries till Midsummer's Day, I believe it was, something like that.
1: Yes, yes, he gets to the middle of things, and then he decides, okay, it's time to go out and honor my agreement because. It's do you what, do you make
0: anything of the fact that it's Midsummer's Day? I mean, uh, in terms of the it from the darkest time of the year to the brightest time of the year, I mean.
1: I think yeah, it's it's the seasons here are richly symbolic as they are in many uh, different texts, uh, but even more symbolic perhaps in uh, in Sir gowan and the Green Knight. Uh, he's at as the year is at its height and best, so also Gawain is at his height and his best. And uh, then we move in from there, uh, from that time of year and Gawain uh, and his reputation over to that very rich arming scene.
0: Yeah, and then there's the harvest and he tarries all the way to Michaelmas, and then all hail day, all saints day. So now we're November 1st, Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. And at that point, then he sets off. So on All Saints Day, that's when he goes. And then the arming scene uh, proceeds, I believe. Um, uh, and in that scene, then what we're going to attend to uh, his uh, shield in particular. You wanted to say something about this. I believe it's line. So it's the second fit, and it's line 620.
1: Yeah. Um, just before we come to that. Okay. Let me also just very quickly say something general here which is that, uh, remember that the author here is most likely a rural nobleman. This is a, this is a nobleman who lives particularly close to uh, what we would nowadays describe as nature or the earth and what have you. So the medieval mind, um, already generally speaking, is much more in tune with the year, with the seasons, with the land, with all these sorts of things than uh, us relatively numb urbanites. Um,
0: yeah, the and- har- harvest is explicitly mentioned, so yes.
1: You you think uh, your sense of chronology, because we've been talking about dating and time and stuff like that, but on a a year-to-year basis, your chronology uh, for the medieval imagination is largely bound up with things like planting and plowing and cultivating and harvesting and uh, the seasonal changes that come with that, the the rains of spring, the beautiful weather of summer, um, the coming of fall and the harvest and all that goes on with that. These are natural touchstones with which to organize your thinking about your own personal narrative and the narrative of your community and uh, other narratives that you encounter along mm. the way. Mm. Um, so again, I, I try to usually signal that to my students so they have that a little bit more at the forefront of their mind because it adds another layer to yeah. putting in here. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's talk about the arming scene. Um,
0: and the pentangle. In yes, particular. the
1: pentangle. Did you want to actually read that section yourself? Or? I have it
0: in medieval English, and I would think it's not okay. the best idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I, I have the Tolkien translation, but I've misplaced it, and I only have the, uh, an edition by Burrow, which is in the actual original Middle English.
1: Yeah, I've got the, I think I mentioned this last time, I have the James Winnie Okay. Page, page translation uh what's the line number again i don't have it signaled in here
0: well i have 620 when the when the pen tangled the paint of pure gold hues is mentioned
1: uh-huh, okay so let us move ahead here we've got a bit um again first of all we'll have to talk a little bit about why the author dwells so long on this scene a lot of my students get bored and confused when they're running through all the details of the arming scene
0: but this uh, is but, but historically uh, the arming scenes are what heroes do, yeah. and the depiction of the hero shield is a, a a fixed type of every heroic scene as well. Not just the arming scene, but what is on the hero shield is of huge significance from Achilles to uh, Aeneas and onwards. But you go.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to start here um, again.
0: It's called an ekphrasis, by the way, the description of what's on it. It's a it, that's the literary name. It's an ekphrasis It's an extended narrative of description. In Achilles' shield, it was on the inside, and there was basically the world known world was there. Likewise, on Aeneas' shield, there there it wasn't a description of the world. It was a, an account of Roman history on the shield.
1: And we uh, and on the gates of the uh, temple as well. Uh, yeah, we encounter it again. It it occurs on a regular basis. So in that sense. Um, I'm not saying here the Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is an epic. It is not an epic. No. It's romance. romance. Um, but uh, having said that, um, this is a clearly, uh, again, a very sophisticated author uh, who has a lot of knowledge about traditions back to which he's uh, speaking and upon which he is drawing in his present day. Um, so let us, uh, I'll just quickly run over the stanza. Sure. So here. Then they brought out the shield of shining duels, with the pentangle painted on it in pure gold. Uh, He swings it over his shoulder, throws it around his neck, where it suited the knight extremely well. And why the pentangle should befit that noble prince, uh, I intend to explain, even should that delay me. Um, It is a symbol that Solomon designed long ago as an emblem of fidelity and justly so. An emblem of fidelity. I just underscore that line there.
0: Yeah, but tokening of truth. But yeah. yes. Uh,
1: yeah, I want you to come back and talk about that in just a minute. Right. Uh, uh, for it is a figure consisting of five points uh, where each line overlaps and locks into another. And the whole design is continuous. And in England is called everywhere, I am told, the endless knot. Therefore, it suits this knight in his shining arms for always faithful in five ways and five times in each case. Gawain was reputed as virtuous, like refined gold, devoid of all vice and with all cur- uh, courtly virtues adorned. So this new painted sign he bore on shield and coat as man most true of speech and fairest spoken knight.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay, Yes. gone well, there.
0: And then, and then it goes on to talk about an extended application of the five points on the shield to Gowan's five signal characteristics. But you wanted me to say something about line 626, I believe it's betokening of trouth. The word trouth here is really important for the whole of the, Uh, thematic structure of the narrative insofar as Gowan is going to have given his word, plighted his troth to the Green Knight before he left, that was part of the beheading game, was that he had to before he took, that is the Green Knight took the axe stroke that lost him his head, Gowan had to give his word that he would find him out in a year and a day and he would receive the same in kind. And that word is what bound Gawain to him. It's part of the game, but it's also a part of Gawain's honor as a Christian knight. And so his word is his bond. It's, a, it's, a, it's not just a, something that he agreed to. It's a, it's a representation of his entire being. He must be that. And it's not just being true to his word. It's a covenant that's been made. So it's a bond like one makes to one's liege lord right? There's a swearing of oaths and often it's uh, symbols are given tokens like a ring or something like that. It's a, it's, there's a a relationship that's been established. So here the sign that Solomon has set on his shield, the five, the endless knot of the five uh, points of the pentangle in betokening of truth by title. Um, So this, yes, that symbol is a symbol of Gawain himself, and with Gowan of the, of the ideal Christian knight. Did you want to say more about that? Or? Just a little bit,
1: actually. Um, again, it's, it's another way of kind of defamiliarizing our modern expectations when it comes to things like pledges and trouth and, and what have you. Um, we tend to think of promises uh, very much in contractual terms nowadays. It's a contract, uh, and uh, as such, it draws uh, on a model of sort of business contracts and stuff yeah. like that. Um, uh, but we have to remember that this would strike your average medieval as both crude and strange. Uh, this is an odd way to talk about um, promises between human beings.
0: Ir- irreligious, really, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, we have to recall that uh, certain things like pledging of troth, like pledging of...
0: Uh, Which is what you do when you marry somebody, right? You plight your troth.
1: Yes, exactly. That is where I'm going with this. Uh, because, of course, in the late 60s in Canada, we changed the covenantial understanding of marriage into a contractual understanding of marriage. And a lot of people just glossed over that and moved on uh, thinking about social history and things like that. Uh, But that was actually a very significant and I would argue unfortunate moment in Canadian uh, history. Um, I
0: I, I could not agree more. And I think it's uh, the word that is given is a word not only to your partner, but to, before God, and it is binding and the, there are blessings incumbent upon it, and also curses should it be broken
1: that's right it's it's witnessed first and foremost by God um, that's why we have uh, the traditional language of the marriage vows and what have you uh, explicitly oftentimes calls that into to people's attention um, and as you say, I mean it, again we have an extension of certain pagan notions here remember we were talking about pietas in a pagan roman sort of context within yes within
0: yes yes
1: this is constituted by his sacred obligations to his duties however understood here we have a christianizing of that and i would uh, again argue a, a great enriching of that notion um, these are not prom- just promises these a, a promise if it's a troth like this is a sacred agreement it's not an agreement it's a sacred agreement and if you violate it you violate not just normalized senses of right and wrong and norms and things like that you violate again that taboo boundary you have just crossed over to something and violated something sacred you've done a a bad thing in a very very different spiritual deep sense
0: yeah and not just towards god you've done it to yourself you've cut off the very life blood from which you, your own life flows, uh, connected with virtue and, um, and a sense of sanctity about all of life, that, that is what is severed.
1: Yeah, and we have to remember here that, I mean, there's some Stoic and Epicurean machinery also uh, contributing way back in the background here, and that there's this notion, persistent Roman notion that gets taken up in, by certain Christian thinkers, um, that being virtuous is its own reward, but by, by extension, being evil is its own punishment. Yes, it becomes part of your identity, um, and that's the burden you carry on your back when you're you, when you're burdened by sins and things like this. So, Gawain is going to flirt with this dangerous realm of covenants and violating covenants, as we shall see. Um,
0: so, so he's faultless in his five wits. He has the five uh, elements of the cross. There are the five. Um, joys of mary there's a whole and by the way on the inside of the shield, we didn't get to this mary herself is depicted yes and when he's in trouble he looks to her
1: yes he does so so she so she actually functions uh as an icon uh in in terms of uh, medieval iconography um so it's it's a meditative and contemplative um tool it's it's uh and it's right there when things are darkest and he has to sh- uh, shelter behind it. Also, of course, he's sheltering behind the Virgin Mary, also symbolically in certain ways. Uh, some of our listeners may know that uh, Marian, uh, the cult of Mary was very much on the rise and was uh, at its, uh, perhaps at its height during the Central and later Middle Ages. This is mm-hmm. something that started in France, but it traveled very quickly to other parts of Europe, including England and um, the Cult of Mary is clearly not just in this text but the other texts uh, of Pearl and Clines and what have you. uh, Marian theology is underscored at numerous points. It seems that the author uh, was very very oriented in this direction. So here we have another uh, iteration of that, um, the respect and fascination he has for the Cult of Mary. Um, Yeah we've got all these different fives coming up um, we've got. I think we mentioned this last time. Five, uh, the five virtues of Gawain, which are friendship, generosity, chastity. Chastity, by the way, in the broader conceptual sense, there are things he holds himself back from, not just sexual. Though that will
0: crop up as it turns out. Uh, he's got. He's got five wits. He's got five fingers. He's got the five wounds of Christ. He's got the five joys of marriage. And the fifth five are those five that you just mentioned. Yeah.
1: And we could geek out about this all day long. I mean, we got the, the five wits, uh, I believe probably alludes to the five inner senses. We've got the five outer senses and the five inner senses, according to the uh, medieval imagination. And, and this is the kind of stuff that takes up a lot of scholarship. Um, but, but
0: Gowan is the, the ideal male figure here then.
1: Yeah, I, there's a, a raging argument amongst both um, its original audience and successive generations as to who was the greatest of the knights of the round table. Um, and Lancelot, of course, sometimes gets signal, but of course, Lancelot is an adulterer and a betrayer. Um, <laughs> it's a bit and, of a problem. <laughs> seems a little vexed. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but the fact that he can stomp anybody who says that, Hey, you're doing a bad thing, uh, and insulates him against being accused of doing bad things. So, um, Gawain though is a very sort of attractive candidate for this status. Um, he doesn't, um, in the end, of course, he uh, he is not that person who is signaled out as the perfect knight. Um, but he's, he's
0: that's Percival, right? But yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, you and I don't have time. Nor is this no. the proper um, venue for discussing all those intricate details, interesting though they are.
0: So he he uh, arms himself and he gets on his horse, literally, and he go- goes up north. And he goes up north through the west of England on the coast of Wales towards the Wirral. In other words, the Liverpool area. So the Northwest of England. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he then uh, encounters, well, first of all, he's freezing cold and he doesn't know if he's going to get there. And he prays. And at that point he prays the Virgin. Mm -hmm. It's revealed to him, right? The, the castle.
1: Correct. Yeah. So uh, again, the author's just doing, I, I think, some really practical stuff here. He sets up the sheer misery of Gawain out there shivering in his armor. Um, it sucks. It's terrible. And then all of a sudden, as you say, he prays and it is revealed and we have an immediate contrast to this wonderful host scene and there's warm fire and there's food and there's uh, hospitality um there's all these things and they're directly contrasting by way of binary opposition to where we just found sir gowan out there i do want to mention just a glancing thing here and pass uh, almost an, a strange little aside at one point the gowan gets into trouble with all sorts of nasties out there as one does i suppose when you're on a quest uh, but there's only one that he actually, uh, uh, that the author really sort of zeroes on for a second. And then he's gone again. But it's a, a, a creature which has caught the imagination of many, many later writers. And that is the feature of, uh, that is the, the, the WODWO, um, W-O-D-W-O, or some people pronounce it WODWO. What is a WODWO? <laughs> Nobody knows. But it's mean, and it lives Excellent. in forests, and it attacks knights, apparently. Excellent. And it has been associated with the name of Voden, as in the god. Voden.
0: Voden. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Um, and Voden's name comes from the madness, the exaltation that comes with the slaughter of the battlefield. What is the connection beyond that? If any, maybe it's just coincidental. We don't know. Mm. But again, it's one of these striking connections. You find them everywhere in this text. Anyway, let's get back to... Uh, well, uh,
0: that, uh, we're going to run out of time to do this up. So let's, let's get through the second fit and then we'll take a break and we'll move to the uh, fits the three and four next time. Um, But he, he gets to the green chapel and then he encounters uh, the Lord of the manor there who receives him with great courtesy. Uh, But he's accompanied by two other strange figures. And I just wanted to mention them at least because it's not insignificant either. One of them is a beautiful woman likened unto Guinevere. Mm Hmm. or Wenora, as she's uh, called in the medieval English here, 945. Um, The other is a little bit different looking, shall we say. Did you want to read that? I have the medieval and I think that it is going to be embarrassing. Should I read it?
1: It's a big, long uh, stanza, but let's have a go at it anyway. When dinner was finished and Gowan had risen, the time had drawn on almost to night. Chaplains, made their way to the ca- uh, castle chapels, uh, rang their bells loudly, just as they should for devout evensong song on that holy occasion. The Lord makes his way there, and his lady too, who gracefully enters a finely carved pew. Gawain hastens there, smartly dressed, and quickly arrives. The Lord takes him by the sleeve and leads him to a seat and greets him familiarly, calling him by his name, and said that he was most w- uh, that he was the welcomest guest in the world. Gawain thanked him heartily, and the two men embraced, and sat gravely together while the service lasted. Then the lady wished to set eyes on the knight and left her pew with many fair women. And here we go. She was the loveliest on earth in complexion and features, in figure, in coloring, and behavior above all others, and more beautiful than Guinevere, it seemed to that knight. She came through uh, the chapel to greet him courteously. Another lady, leading her by the left hand, come mm-hmm. back we'll talk about that in a second who was older than she an aged one it seemed and respectfully treated by the assembled knights but very different in looks were those two ladies for where the young one was fresh and the other was with uh, the other was withered every part of that one was rosily aglow the, on the other rough wrinkled cheeks hung in folds many bright pearls adorned the kerchief of one whose breast and white throat uncovered and bare shone more dazzling than the snow new-fallen on hills. The other wore a gorget over her neck, her swarthy chin wrapped in chalk-white veils, her forehead enfolded in silk muffled up everywhere. With embroidered hems and lattice work of tiny stitching, so that nothing was exposed of her but her black brows, her two eyes and her nose, her naked lips which were repulsive to see and shockingly bleared, a noble lady indeed you may call her by God, with body squat and thick, and buttocks bulging broad, more delectable in looks was the lady whom she led.
0: So there's, a, there's a, certainly an element of humor in the portrait here. I think we have to, uh, I mean, we mentioned it in the first episode uh, that uh, Gawain, for all of uh, the mystery and the uh, grandeur of the portrait, is also not uh, versed to humorous portraits. And this one is certainly very funny. Yes. Beauty and the Beast, as it were.
1: Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, this is actually, again, another one of these regular motifs, a light motif, if you like. Of uh, many different um, medieval tales, not just romances, where you have a careful, up close study of a repulsive woman. Um, and I can't remember if I mentioned um, this other very strange, oftentimes very funny tale um, Dame Ragnall and Sir Gowan, the tale of Dame Ragnall and Sir Gowan. No,
0: you didn't mention that.
1: Okay. Uh, just very, very quickly, because some of the re- original readers might have had this tale in mind when we're getting this description of this loathly lady. By the way, that's the proper term for her. She's a loathly lady. Um, and uh, for some reason, in the other story, Gowan rapes a woman, which is very incongruous with his character. And we're not told much about it. It's It's something that precedes the tale. And he is put on trial, as he should be. Uh, <laughs> And he is given over to the judgment of the queen and her court, Guinevere. By the way, Guinevere and Gowan have a very eh, relationship. Uh-huh. Um, and she says, if he can find out in one year's time, then in one year and a day, come back to me and tell me this, what is the one thing all women want? And, of course, uh, everyone is sort of meant to be dismayed by this. and We, we never know what they want.
0: <laughs> Gowan? <laughs> I have no idea.
1: The quest, and Gowan's asking everybody, and nobody an- can give him the answer, or the, uh, they all give him different answers and what have you. And eventually, he's heading back to the court to, to pay the penalty, to die for his, uh, his sins. Um, when he meets a loathly lady, not unlike the one we just encountered here. And she says, I'll tell you what all women want, but in return, you have to marry me. Um, and she is, they spend a lot of time really doing what is being done here in this text, uh, where they go over every minute little detail uh, and explore just how repulsive this woman is, which is of course a, a countertype type to another medieval way of doing literary business where you describe a beautiful woman uh, from the head down, bit, 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 all the different things of her and then they dwell on these things. Um, she whispers something in his ear, he goes off, uh, he tells uh, Queen Guinevere in her court, um, The answer, what do women want? Sovereignty. There's your answer. Oh. And Guinevere looks at her ladies and says, by thunder, he got it. Um, Okay, I guess you get to live. Um, And Gowan says, okay, by the way, I'm getting hitched. So along comes the wedding and everyone's dismayed. Gowan, the most uh, sought after of knights by the women of the court, uh, is marrying one of the most repulsive creatures in all of England. Um, and then they get to the bedchamber to consummate uh, things and what have you. And she uh, uh, asks him another question. I can either be absolutely gorgeous during the day when you're out in public with everybody, but a hideous hag at night when you and I are in the bedchamber. Or I can be absolutely gorgeous here in the bedchamber, but I will be a hideous woman out in public uh, continuously draped on your arm. Which one is it? Again, it's a second trap. And Gowen quite wisely recognizes it as a trap and says, I don't know. You decide you're sovereign. And she says, <laughs> dancer, I'm beautiful both day and night. And that is the marriage of Gowan and Dame Ragnall.
0: Wow. So that, that, it's a little bit like, uh, gosh, was the Shrek and the, the, all that. Ew.
1: Yes. Oh, no, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Yes. It's, it's, and it's not an uncommon medieval tale. So, uh, again, more backdrop potentially to what we're seeing here. But Scott, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the details of it. Well, I mean, I
0: don't have that much. I, I mean, the appearance is obviously um, standards of beauty and the portraits thereof. The women, uh, the attractive woman is is white-skinned because she's not worked a day in her life and all that. And um, the uh, clothing she wears is over there. I mean, the thing that I draw attention to is the fact she is led by the left hand by the Elder of the two women, mm-hmm. uh, an ancient one, and the left hand has the connotations of the uh, sinister in Latin. So the yeah. mana uh, uh, sinistra here, the left hand, and so she's, she's a diabolical figure.
1: Yes, uh, And there's a few other indications that she is also a bad person. Remember mm-hmm. to the medieval imagination, again, you know, very, very, everything's symbolic, everything's figurative. Um, and so one's appearance. Um, Speaks oftentimes volumes about the character of the person. Nowadays, of course, we spend a lot of time um, preaching against that kind of thing how outward appearances and abilities and things it's like that happen.
0: And so forth. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And we, we pound the table so long and so hard on that one that we kind of lose sight or we're shocked when medievals start implying something about the character by the physical appearance of certain characters. Uh, but remember, they're able to think figuratively. Um, the people are oftentimes making the mistake here of misinterpreting the ex- uh, external appearance with the inner uh, uh, the inner character. Uh, are we
0: body uh, shaming that old lady? Is that what's
1: are, going on? Exactly. We're body shaming that old crone. <laughs> <laughs> Notice she has black brows. Yes, yes. Black hair in the Middle Ages, both the early and high Middle Ages, was considered ugly, to use their word for it, hideous. Um, if you have a black-haired individual, you might want to think of medieval characters like that as the sort of uh, a- a medieval analog to the old western, where the guy who's wearing the black hat is your bad guy, that's how you spot him. Um, so she's got black brows. Um, remember, blonde is your ideal, grey eyes is your ideal, fair-skinned as you say is your ideal. Long necks, if you look at medieval portraiture of quote-unquote beautiful women, you'll notice they also have high foreheads, ridiculously high foreheads, because that was thought to be beautiful. Um, they would actually pluck their hair along the top here, oftentimes to raise the level of their forehead. And long necks, you'll see it also in portraiture, these women with these long, almost giraffe-like white <laughs> necks. Um, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so uh, a striking contrast again because we said this in the previous podcast so much in here is meant to be read comparatively and uh, likewise you immediately get two characters side by side quite literally um and one is leading the other uh, with all the rich symbolism behind that because of course this is going to be um none other than our arch villain of the tale but we'll come to her uh, presently in and on uh, Scott, was there more you wanted to say on this scene here
0: well, just the, the conclusion of this is the uh, the game that he uh, pro- the, the, the Lord of the Manor proposes with him. I believe yes. um, that he should uh, Gowan should remain with them, Terry, for a few days, and they Lord of the Manor will go out hunting and return at the end of the day 's hunting with whatever he 's caught and Gowan will receive from him that as a gift and in return this must simply reciprocate whatever he's received will give in in turn to the lord of manor and that's it it's that's uh, and he agrees to it uh gowan after this long voyage battling through monsters uh he finds himself exhausted and of course he agrees to the game
1: yeah it's it's the second game of the story um, sometimes known as the hunting game. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not, again, it's not incredibly anomalous. It's, it's somewhat traditional in mythology, literature, and folklore. Um, so this is not the first time that this happens either. We're going to talk about that in very considerable detail uh, with our next podcast, to be sure. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not going to go into that too much uh, at this point. Um, is there any final thing, though, that we want to sum up with here before we leave this chunk of the tale behind us?
0: No, I think uh, so. It, the, it concludes with these lines to, to bed yet ere they lead, they, they yeed recorded covenants off the old lord of that lead, cooth well hold lake aloft. Anyway, something so there's a covenant that's been once again established between the two in the same way that he had established a covenant with the green knight. Now he's established a covenant with the lord of the manor.
1: Yes, and he breaks both covenants significantly with all these sort of thematic and moral um, implications that that brings with him. Uh, Let me leave off with also noting, just for um, the listener's benefit here, Uh, Tolkien pointed out quite rightly um, when he was analyzing this text that uh, the character of Bersalak or Bertalak, depending on which translation. The Lord of the
0: Manor. Or no, the Great Knight. No, it's both. Yes, sorry. Oops. Uh,
1: Plot spoiler, um, that he's often portrayed at this point in the text and, uh, and somewhat later as a loud, boisterous, jovial character. There's, yeah, every now and again, there's a bit of the buffoon about him, and uh, he's very much about jokes and laughter and, and conviviality, and he's a great host. He's, he's wonderfully entertaining to be around. Uh, sounds very much like, left to his own devices, Bersalak is li- the life of the party. Um, great guy to have as your friend. He's continuously patting you on the shoulder and saying interesting things and, uh, and, and quick to laugh. Um, and there's going to be a magnificent character turn as we get to the end, as we realize that Bursalak is a much more serious figure than we had first thought. He's not quite as buffoonish as we thought. In fact, he's, he's not, there's nothing foolish about him at all. There's a terrible wisdom about mm. this guy. And the laughter dies away and the smile dies away and he's just left looking down at Gowen in particular and uh, human society and the Knights of the Round Table more generally speaking. So watch for that rise in that character that very very interesting rise as Gowen has a similar fall towards the end so
0: okay well that you've left us off with something to look forward to that's great uh shall we conclude with that bill
1: we will uh ladies and gentlemen thanks for tuning in and listening i am as always dr bill friesen and i am joined here by my colleague dr scott masson thank you and this has been idea today